Welcome to Cast Conversations, a bi-weekly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. My name is Rosie O'Brien Voitek, and I'm the current president for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Our special guest today is Dr. Joanne Freiberg. Dr. Freiberg is an education consultant for school climate, restorative practices, bullying, and character education in the turnaround office for the Connecticut State Department of Education. Joanne Freiberg is committed to assisting schools and other youth-serving community organizations to create physically, emotionally, and intellectually safe and respectful learning and social environments for all students and the adults who work with them. During the past year, Dr. Freiberg has been very busy teaching numerous workshops across the state on positive school climate and restorative practices. We're very excited to have Joanne Freiberg joining us today for this CAST conversation. So welcome, Joanne. Thank you, Rosie. It's such an honor to be here. So I can only imagine, because of the work that you do for the State Department of Education, that no two days are ever the same. That being said, would you describe for our listeners what your work really entails as an educational consultant for school climate, restorative practices, bullying, and character education? That's a, that's a meaty question, and <laughs> let me just say that I, I sometimes feel a little bit bifurcated because I do two main things in my role at the department. I do an incredible amount of professional development around restorative practices, school climate improvement, helping young people develop good character, if you will, just be good people. And then on the other side, I am the lucky person at the state (laughs) who (laughs) who receives the bullying complaints when things aren't resolved or people want questions answered beyond what they perceive the school can respond to. But I also hear in those complaints, it's actually a very satisfying part of my job, do a lot of problem solving with school leaders who are having questions or want to ask about how to manage a particular issue. So it's all in the same arena, but that's the two main buckets of work that I do. <laughs> and that's quite a lot of work. <laughs> very, very busy person. So as you know, there are federal and state laws as well as local school policies to protect students from bullying and harassment. Each school district is required by law to have policies and practices in place as well as a designated individual to handle complaints. Briefly describe for us what school leaders need to know about the laws and what school leaders can do to ensure that all our schools are safe and nurturing environments and places where all our students have access to equal educational opportunities. Again, you've packed a lot into that question. (laughs) I did. But let me start at the end and say that the ultimate remedy for this beast we call bullying is to have safe environments, safe and welcoming environments for all, physically, emotionally, intellectually safe environments. And that's the ultimate goal. After Columbine, and you can kind of draw that very clear line in the sand, it was April 20th, 1999, the language of bullying came into our lives, our educational lives. And there were no anti-bullying laws before Columbine. About three months after that tragedy, Georgia passed the first in the nation anti-bullying law. And as of September 2015, all 50 states have anti-bullying laws. Now, what I find is very interesting is that we have 50 different state anti-bullying laws and 50 different 
definitions of bullying. There really is no definition of bullying. It's a moving target. Every time we in Connecticut have amended our statute, which is about six times we have uh, since we first passed it in 2002, we've changed the definition. So the closest thing you're going to come to a common definition is that bullying is about abuse of power in a school context. It's much like child abuse or domestic violence. But it's somewhat arbitrary how bullying is investigated and the conclusions that the safe school climate specialist comes to in any given school. About two-thirds of the schools in the state have said sort of consistently over the years that they've had at least one verified case of bullying and a third of the schools say they have had none. And it's a very, very low percentage of children that are labeled bullies. The state law requires that every district have something called a safe school climate plan, which doesn't really make any sense. And what it really means that every district needs to have a district anti-bullying policy. And the Connecticut Association for Boards of Education, CABE, has given it its unique number. So they are pretty identical across the state, and that number would be 5131.911. So districts have to have an up-to-date bullying policy in their safe school climate plan, and they have to have different individuals and entities that come from that. Every school has to have a safe school climate specialist. Every district has to have a safe school climate coordinator. Every school has to have a safe school climate committee that has at least one parent. But it varies, and there's no real way to get a handle on compliance. I think compliance is pretty good across the state, but there's no reporting that is happening and no real way to check up on an accountability that's required if schools don't have it. There have been no changes since 2014 to the statutes, and currently there is a uh, task force that is looking at all of the issues in this very big arena around bullying, school climate, restorative practices, behavior management, social-emotional learning, character education, and anything else you want to throw (laughs) into that pot so that the legislature can be informed about what would be the appropriate next steps. And are they going to be looking at that in the coming year? Well, they were charged to do this a full year ago, and were supposed to deliver recommendations by this past January. But with our current fiscal crises and the budget not passed, coupled with the national election and what happened in that whole arena, that committee has not yet made recommendations. But I'm hopeful that they will get back into gear as soon as the state budget is passed and then will move forward. Great, thanks. So I guess the next question I want to ask is what in your view is a positive safe school climate and why is that important and what does it look like, sound like, and feel like? Well, the simplest definition of school climate is the quality and character of school life. And there are national school climate standards, which are pretty awesome. We've had those since 2010. And they really do set the parameters or the standards for what a positive school climate should look like. It should be about mission and vision and policies and practices and actually standard for about creating a welcoming and safe environment is the spirit of the anti-bullying laws. 
But it's not just important, it's necessary. Every child, you ask what it looks like, feels like, sounds like, every child, every adult who enters a school, whether it's a parent or guardian or a member of the faculty staff or community, as well as every child, should look forward to entering a school building. They should come with a smile on their face, go through the day with a smile on their face. People should be happy. They should enjoy themselves while they're there, struggle with learning, absolutely struggle with learning how to get along and so on, but struggle is part of life and struggle is part of learning, but they should go home looking forward to coming back. And so there's sort of a a simple kind of stand in a hallway and does it feel happy? Does it feel calm? Are people nice to one another? (laughs) Or is there a lot of yelling and sad faces and unhappy people? So a positive climate is absolutely the foundation of a high quality learning environment. This is not something as an add-on. And there is incontrovertible data around this reality. It's like meeting basic psychological and physical needs. Having a school and classrooms and the whole school that is conducive to people getting along and learning is absolutely essential or we can't have high quality learning. Absolutely. And I just want to say that the National School Climate Council NSCC developed the National School Climate Standards, and if people are interested in them, they could probably go out to the website and take a look at those standards? Absolutely. There are five standards, and then there are substandards and indicators and so on, and it's a very easy document to access. Um, All you have to do is put in your search bar, National School Climate Standards, and they'll probably come up in a, a dozen different places, but they're very easy to access. Great, thanks. So one of the things that you're doing around the state and you're very busy is you're conducting basic and advanced school climate training sessions. Who should attend those trainings? What would they learn if they were to attend those training sessions? And most importantly, what do you hope they take away from those sessions and how can those takeaways make a difference in their classrooms and schools? Well, I don't mean to be flippant, but everybody who works in a school or who works with children should take basic climate training. Basic climate training, it surrounds understanding strength-based models. We go over school connectedness, resiliency, using youth as resources, and a very rich model called the Circle of Courage, which is a Lakota model. We also look at the dynamics of the conflict cycle and the impact of transitions. We look at the Connecticut Code of Professional Responsibility and what it takes for student success for starters. And people come away with the knowledge that relationships matter, that relationships have to be thoughtful and strategic and positive. We also do an overview in basic climate training around restorative practices as part of the content to set people's heads in the right direction for getting real training and knowing the direction of this work. School climate training is sort of a a missing piece in many of our whether we're teachers or administrators in our pre-service education. It's information that most parents wouldn't have, security guards, paraprofessionals. When I say everybody or every face, this is very important information because it's about what children need, what parents and guardians need, what faculty and staff need in order to do their jobs, whether their jobs are to teach, to administer, to supervise, to learn. 
These are basic needs and it all boils down to building high quality relationships. Every child should have a very special relationship with at least one adult in school that they perceive is there for them. So this is essential work and I've been doing school climate training for, wow, in the state close to 20 years now and people still come. And I think they still come and they fill up the training sessions because they know it's valuable and I'm pretty humbled by that. Yeah. And you should be. And I can say that I met you way back when with Don't Laugh at Me on that program way back when. Shall I date us, Joanne? Well, we're both getting, <laughs> shall we say, more seasoned. <laughs> yeah, more seasoned, yes, absolutely. So you're also conducting restorative practice training sessions across Connecticut. What is restorative practice? That's a really good question. Let me recite the fundamental hypothesis in restorative practices because it sort of sets the stage for what this work is. Human beings are happiest, healthiest, and most likely to make positive changes in their behavior when those in positions of authority do things with them rather than to them or for them. And that fundamental hypothesis coupled with some other very important and profound research, supports the two goals of working restoratively. There are only two. Goal one, which should be the lion's share of the work in a restorative practices framework, is to build positive relationships and positive community. And that's really what creating a positive climate is about. The second goal, is to repair those relationships and the community when harm has been done to it or to relationships. So those are the two overarching goals. And when you build relationships and instead of punishing people when they break rules and instead we look at the harms that are done based on the impact of the breaking of a rule, if you will, we try to bring people together, not just punish the perpetrator and sort of dust off the victim, the target, but instead go through a series of very common sense questions to help individuals realize the impact, take responsibility, and then suggest ways to repair the harm. And when you're working restoratively, there can never ever be predetermined consequences. Consequences aren't determined prior to the negative impact happening. Consequences are determined with the people who have been impacted working together to determine what needs to happen to bring relationships back together as well as a community back together, a classroom, a group, a team, whatever the group is. We do this in families very commonly. Some of us do it well, some of us do it poorly. But when we have children who, uh, siblings, I like to refer to them as frenemies because they, <laughs> they play sometimes beautifully and then you turn your back and they're at each other's throats, whether literally mm -hmm. or theoretically. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, we have to bring them back together because there's only one car that they're going to travel in to go to softball or soccer. There's only one table where we're going to eat meals around. I hope we're still doing that. And there's only one place where we're going to go on a family vacation together. So families necessarily bring back 
people together. Schools, on the other hand, aren't working on that model for the most part, and they should. That's what working restoratively is all about. Working restoratively, well, in schools, when a harm has been done, a rule has been broken, and children think they don't like each other anymore, which happens with siblings, what we do is we change classes, we change bus routes, we change lockers, we change lunch waves, we change everything we can possibly change so that the children never see one another again, which is ridiculous because that's not how life happens. Right. We need to bring people back together. But let me, let me yes. add one other thing, and that is that if you want to bring people back together and repair harm, you first have to have a relationship or community that's been solidly built, or there's nothing to repair. So when you're working in a restorative practices framework, the lion's share of what you're doing, I'll pull a number out of a hat, 80% of what you should be doing is building that community, creating that positive climate, because it is much less likely for people to have conflict and not be able to work it out when you have solid relationships and a solid community to start out with. Absolutely, and a positive school climate. Absolutely, that's yeah. what uh, the first goal is all about. That's yeah. why this work dovetails together <laughs> beautifully. Great, so let's just talk about the key elements and practical strategies that are needed in a restorative culture. Well, anything, absolutely anything that helps people get to know one another, we call those relational practices, whether it's learning names, switching people up so they're not always sitting in the same groupings, whether it's bulletin boards or sharing favorites of this or hobbies of that, and just anything that helps people get to know one another counts as a relational practice. That's the building of relationships. One of the hallmark strategies is working in circles. Now, just like any other teaching or home strategy, if you did everything in a circle, it would get old and it would not be novel. So this is just, as I say, one more tool in educators' toolboxes to use in the classroom. But when you're working in circles, it should be done thoughtfully and strategically and in a routine way. Because the gentleman I think of when I think about working restoratively and how brilliantly he worked routines into his work is Mr. Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, who every day for 40 years, five days a week, began every show by taking off his jacket and putting on a sweater, taking off his loafers and putting on his tennis shoes, singing the same song, and then he did it in reverse on the way out. And I guess we could say, wow, he wasted precious airtime doing the same thing over and over. But it was not a waste because what he was able to do by having routines that were predictable and safe for young people in order to invite them in to his show, his program, was to talk about very complex and difficult issues. He talked about separation and anger and dislike and anything that, you know, we, we tend, wow, we don't want to do that until kids are older. But Mr. Rogers was able to do that because of the routines he set up. So circles, very often having a morning check-in circle, just get to know you, go around, takes 30 seconds to ask what's your favorite sport or something of that sort. Favorite ice cream, Fav favorite anything. <laughs> anything um, yeah. You know, where would you like to go on your next trip? Just simple kinds of things. Set the stage to say, we're here today together. 
And sometimes, if you're in elementary school, for example, coming in after lunch recess when it's so tough to regroup and change modes and transition, to come together and just say, take a deep breath, whether you do something with movement or you do some, do another sort of get to know you kind of exercise. And then at the end of the day, just like Fred Rogers did, to group together to say something they learned, something they'll think about tonight or tomorrow in anticipation coming back. But again, to cement the fact that we are a class community and we're, we're together. Circles can be used to solve problems, but that's not the entry point in a restorative practices framework. The entry point is really understanding the importance of building that house, building that foundation, creating that positive climate. That's the foundation. And helping people to get to know each other. Absolutely. And respect each other. Great. Thanks. So many school districts across Connecticut have implemented PBIS, positive behavior intervention supports. How are PBIS and restorative practices alike? How are they different? And can schools do both? Well, the answer to can they do both There are some similarities that I think are are very profound and very important for both PBIS as well as for restorative. It's systems work. We're trying to look at this in a systems approach. And both restorative and PBIS look at teaching children's skills. If they don't know how to walk down the hall, we have to teach them how to walk down the hall. And it's very much they both rest on having common language for both approaches. But there are some philosophical and fundamental differences in these two models. And I think ultimately, if you go deeper than those commonalities I just described, I'm not sure it's possible to do both. And the reasons why is PBIS is clearly working from a behaviorist model. And restorative practices works from a relational model. So that's sort of a big difference. But in the weeds, if the focus is on giving extrinsic rewards, that does not have a place in restorative practices. And when I shared the fundamental hypothesis earlier about people working with others, not doing things to them or for them, the way in which consequences are given is fundamentally different. In a restorative model, the individuals get together and determine what the consequences will be. And there are always consequences. Sometimes folks think if you're working restoratively, you've thrown consequences out the window. That's so far from the truth. There are always consequences. They don't have to be punishing or exclusionary consequences. But in a PBIS model, if you're really looking at it with fidelity, there are authority-driven consequences. Very often, they come in a rubric that predetermines that if you do something, you break if you swear, then we'll call home. If you hurt somebody's property, then you're going to in-school suspension. And those are predetermined. Sometimes an authority figure, an administrator, may give the consequence. But that's not how it works in a restorative model. In a restorative model, there are not major and minor referrals. It's not about office referrals. It's really about eliminating suspension, exclusionary consequences, figuring out what needs to happen to repair the harm so that we bring people back into the community, into the classroom, and so on. Another simple example is very often in schools that embrace PBIS schools, we see signs 
in very prominent locations all over the school that have sort of codified how we treat one another. Be kind, be respectful, keep your hands to yourself, something of that sort. In a restorative model, all social contracts or rules are determined together. Adults working with students, even at the youngest years. So I think depending upon how deep you get into understanding these two models, I don't think you can do both with fidelity simultaneous. They're Mm -hmm. just too philosophically different. Right. So can you give an example of a situation and just kind of talk about how you would solve that restoratively instead of just saying, okay, you're going to go to suspension or detention or whatever. How would you, if you had two kids that got into a fight, how would you work with those kids? The, the process never changes. And sometimes if a child reaches over, grabs somebody's paper, rips it up, throws it across the room, there's usually a backstory. I mean, kids in general don't just do that. They're, their buttons are pushed, somebody said something, whatever. So there are times when children need to be separated and sometimes even removed from the classroom while we're solving the problem. But when you have a restorative school, the teacher, whether it's in the moment or it may be at the end of the class or when everybody else gets to settle, there's no specific time frame in which this happens. But the child who's still in the classroom is asked a series of questions and the child who has been sent down to the office just because we need to separate them while we're figuring this mm-hmm. out, is asked the same set of questions. And those questions uh, those are? questions are, the first one starts with, what happened? And our immediate reaction is usually, why did you do that? But this is a question that never should be asked of children, of adolescents, and it is not a question that it's a restorative question. So to ask what happened, what was on your mind at the time, which really does have the child go back and replay, and you may get the reasons behind it, but you don't get it by asking why when the child will say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So you ask, what happened? What was on your mind at the time? Who was impacted? And there's nothing magic about these questions so that they may, may meander a little bit. They may come out of order. It depends on how they come out. You may want to say, tell me more. But who was impacted? How did you feel? How do you think the other person felt? And the final question is, what do we need to do to make this right? And if the same questions are being asked, no matter where these children are, and whether it's two or five or a whole class, eventually, without tricking anybody, without forcing anybody, we bring people together to ask the same questions so that child one, who did the paper ripping up, can hear from the other one who was on the receiving end. And we learn that the one who ripped up the paper was tired of hearing that he couldn't catch a ball, he didn't want to be on his team, that he wasn't going to be invited in the birthday party, which is what triggered the ripping up of the paper. And that not only did we need to apologize together, but they agreed that one needed to have the other to his birthday party, making amends, and the other one was going to not get frustrated and have that individual on their team at recess, and we're going to keep working at it. Now, it's not always that perfect, but you will never punish a child 
into behaving differently. In the same way, you will not punish a child into learning to read. And when you're truly working restoratively as a school, you can virtually do away with exclusionary punishment. Schools in Connecticut, as well as nationally, that are embracing this approach really is a journey, though. It's not something a lot of people don't want to give up that, you know, deep roots on the island of punishment. But you solve problems, you get to the root causes, you meet needs, and there is no need for punishing kids. There's no need for suspension. So that many schools have completely repurposed in school suspension rooms. Are there times when children are technically out of class longer than the state law that says that children out of class more than 90 minutes are suspended? Absolutely. But even to change the name of suspension rooms and school suspension rooms to resource rooms or reflection rooms or learning labs or anything because these become learning opportunities, teachable moments. Children who come with very few social relational behavioral skills aren't going to get better just by being out of class. They need to be in class. They need the supports to learn a different set of tools to help when they get angry, when they have conflict. And that's part of life. Right, and I think the the big important piece is when they are removed, it's helping them to get back into the classroom so that you have restored that relationship with the teacher or with the rest of the kids in the classroom, which doesn't always happen with suspensions. I think it rarely happens with suspensions. You do your time, you come back in. And I'm glad you mentioned with the teacher or with whomever because this is not just for children to children issues. These are for people to people issues. And very often it is the teacher who's been harmed by a child doing X, Y, and Z or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Sometimes teachers with all good intentions will call out a child who's gotten 100% on a particular paper when that child does not want to be embarrassed and thought about that way. So even though good intentions have caused harm, we need to hear one another so that we get to the root of the problem and we can come back together. And in fact, in a restorative approach, every time you have to repair some harm, Whoever's doing the repairing, especially if an adult is helping to facilitate the asking of those questions, when children leave that exchange, the relationship should be stronger than when they started. It's sort of a blueprint goal. Wow, so building those relationships every single time. Every time. Yeah. So I heard you say it's a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. I've also heard you talk about the fact that implementing restorative practices is a cultural shift. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, it's a cultural shift in that schools for years, I mean, I I think about my own upbringing years ago. I won't date myself too much, but decades. <laughs> I think we already have, yeah, Joanne. Yeah, is... <laughs> You know, we broke a rule, we got in trouble, we did our time, and we came back as if nothing, you know, we wouldn't do it again. And these kind of exclusionary punishments, whether you suspend or you withhold some privilege or, you know, take away a, you can't go on the field trip, whatever it was, it works for kids, you have to do it to once. And you never know who that child is going to be, number one. And number two, even for the child who you've done it to once, you have chipped away at that relationship and sometimes may never repair it. And that's a problem, especially if it's early in the year when the child is just getting adjusted to a class and believes the teacher is out to get him or the teacher doesn't like him. 
So it's a cultural shift to think about behavior in the same way that we think about teaching academic skills. It's fundamentally no different. If a child has a tantrum or throw things when they get angry, they have to learn different ways to manage that anger than having that tantrum. And they're only going to do that. And I think it was you who reminded me a few weeks ago that to change a habit, it takes 27 times. I think I did say that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it does. That stuck yes. with me. It takes 27 <laughs> times to practice something. So if we're just continually sending kids out to think about whatever it is they did wrong, they're not learning what they need to learn. So this is a very big cultural shift away from punishing bad behavior to teaching skills and getting to the bottom and building empathy around the harm that has been done. So it's not about rule breaking, it's about impact. Right, and you're always talking about giving kids tools to put in their toolbox? Yes. And that toolbox doesn't have any compartments. There's not an academic compartment and a social relational behavioral compartment. It's one toolbox. And sometimes children come to school with empty toolboxes. Sometimes they come to school with pretty good tools. They have siblings at home. They've learned to share and care, and they know their letters and so on. And quite frequently, many children show up with very rusty, unusable tools, like the tool that many parents put in that toolbox that says if somebody gets too close to you, if they get in your face and look like they're going to call you a name or hit you, you hit first. Well, that's a really lousy tool down the Mm -hmm. line. That's not going to allow you to keep a job, get a job, and so on. So we, as educators, are in the business of filling up toolboxes with good tools. Right. That's a great analogy. So if people are interested in this, how much is it going to cost them to do restorative practices in their school? Nothing. <laughs> this Did you hear that? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> we need that. <laughs> because the State Department of Education is sponsoring this training, there is no cost to attend. We have online registration, and it's very simple. Uh, we do it all over the state. Sometimes I do it alone. Sometimes I do it with another trained colleague. And this training comes from the International Institute for Restorative Practices. I'm a certified trainer, and there's a number of us around the state. And we offer this training, it's filled to capacity every time because, as I like to say, this train has left the station. And folks can get on it now, they can get on it later, but it's coming because we cannot keep doing the same thing over and over and over because what we're doing is not diminishing suspensions and exclusionary discipline in the way that this work does. This is a culture change. You either are restorative or you're not restorative. And let me say one other piece when you talk about training is this is a very positive buzzword out there now to work restoratively. And it's not clear that everybody really knows exactly what it means. Um, Sometimes we hear people talk about restorative discipline or restorative justice. And I get a little worried when somebody says, we do restorative discipline. And I'll say, well, what does that mean? Well, we give kids a choice. They can either serve their detention or they can do a service learning project. That's not restorative. That is predetermined. That's authority. And even though there's a little choice, it has nothing to do with working restoratively. You either are restorative 
or you're not restorative, or you're journeying to a place where you're restored. It's who you are as a human being. It's how you approach issues. It's how you manage conflict. It's not something you do. So there are restorative justice conferences. Those are very high-end. They involve police departments and court support services and so on. But all of it is explained in a restorative practices framework. So this is a framework. The lion's share of it is working on goal one, which is to build relationships and community at school climate level. And then the other 20%, hope it's less than that, is about repairing those relationships and community when harm has been done. Great. So if anyone's interested in taking your restorative practices training sessions or the climate sessions, is that posted at the State Department? Yes. I'm not sure exactly where. You could probably, you know, search for it. But let me tell you that the way Eventbrite is set up, it's not in chronological order and it's not in alphabetical order. You just have to scroll all over to find the various training sessions. And register online, you'll get confirmation, and it's free. And I hope to see everybody there. I hope to, too. So talk about people who have gotten started with doing restorative practices. What kinds of benefits and successes are you seeing from some of those schools and districts? Well, let me say they're profound. One is overall calmness in the school. Uh, because one of the hallmarks of working in circles and having a talking piece to work in circles is that everybody has a voice. And so often, whether it's children or adults, find they don't have enough opportunity to talk about what's going on. And so there's a calmness when everybody knows they will have a chance to share their story. So a calmness, the number of suspensions has just dropped astronomically in schools that have have, um, implemented restorative practices. Expulsions are similarly, I talked to one superintendent who over the last five, six years has had six, seven, eight, nine, twelve expulsions this past school year, the one that just ended, zero. Wow. Um, So, and, and suspensions may go from hundreds down to handfuls and in some schools they have eliminated in school suspension rooms there just isn't it it just doesn't fit anymore so all kinds of higher levels of engagement faculty staff engagement adult engagement student engagement um, solving of problems in ways that that really change uh, the dynamics as opposed to doing it over and over and over again Um, But again, it's a way of thinking and being. It's not, this is not a program. It's not a curriculum. It's not a discipline system. It's who you are and how you approach the building of community and relationships and how you approach solving problems when harm has been done. Right. There's a book that you had me read and my staff read to it. She Can't Teach Through a Rat. Yes. And it's kind of like what you're just talking about. I don't know if you want to just mention that book in case people might be interested in reading it. It's called You Can't Teach Through a Rat by Dr. Marvin Berkowitz, who is a gem of a human being. He's a developmental psychologist, and one of his hobbies is stand-up comedy, so he writes with very good humor. But he really talks about very common sense aspects brings us back to what we got into the field for and 
what needs to happen in terms of relationship building and fostering intrinsic motivation and working with kids and making schools happy destinations. So it is an awesome book. I use it in the lone graduate class I teach (laughs) every year. Yeah, so so just so people know, you can't teach through a rat is because there's a boy that comes to school and he is raising his hand and he wants to tell everybody else about his brother's pet rat. And the whole idea is until he gets that out, he can't think about anything else. Even though it was math class. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So for people who are starting to implement restorative practices or people who are thinking about it, what advice do you have for those educators? Carve out time to talk with colleagues about how it's going. We are starting to create, Rosie, you've hosted one. There was one in Stratford last spring. We're having another one in Woodbury in October, and more will be coming. I call them networking sessions where people who have gone through restorative can gather together from all over the state and just talk about successes, challenges, get ideas, because this is a real journey, and we need to do it with others. I believe, and I've said this to folks at the IIRP, the International Institute for Restorative Practices, I believe Connecticut may be the first restorative practices state in the nation. Wow. Uh, We have many districts that are embracing this at a district level, and it's very exciting to see. It keeps me going, (laughs) and it's just an enjoyable place to, to be. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and talking with us. Uh, I tell you this every time I see you, that every time I listen to you talk, I learn something that I haven't learned before. And I think other people around the state probably feel the same way. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing to help us improve the climate and just help all kids be successful here. So thank you for coming today and taking time to talk with us. You're very kind, Rosie, and I value (laughs) your collegiality in our relationship. And it goes both ways. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this episode of CAS Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.